We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. Welcome to this episode of the PA Path Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lohenry, and we are glad you could join us as we seek to better understand the PA profession. Someone you know is coming out as transgender or non-binary, uh, which is a subset of, or maybe a corollary to transgender. The first thing is, I'm so happy for you. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us again today. Today, we are honoring National Coming Out Day by having a distinguished guest, Mr. Joseph Burwell, join us. Joseph is the first PA to transition while serving in the CIA as a PA. And Joseph's going to share with us some of his challenges and rewards, both in his own personal transition from female to male, but also uh, in the process as a PA to support those who are transitioning. Joseph is a former AAPA Humanitarian of the Year Award recipient. He has been recognized by uh, many other organizations for his work in equality, including the Human Rights Campaign. And he started Peacework Medical, which is a uh, nonprofit organization that has done incredible work both uh, abroad and in Arizona uh, for those who are seeking asylum uh, because of their trans status. So please enjoy the great stories that Joseph has to share. Joseph, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to join us. Certainly my pleasure, Kevin. Thanks for having me. And, you know, I really nobody special. Anyone can do what I've done. You just uh, need to clear a path and do it. Absolutely. I remember when we first met, I was the director at Midwestern University in Glendale, Arizona. So this is well over a decade ago. It was, I believe, right after you were chosen as the Humanitarian PA of the Year for the American Academy of Physician Assistants, which I think was in 2008. That's true. <laughs> and and that was based on the great work that you were doing, as I recall, with Peacework Medical Projects uh, in Honduras and Haiti and and other places around the world. So I'd, I'd love to get into that part too. But let's start first with just your story about how you chose to become a PA. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I was born and raised in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which is the home of Wake Forest University PA program. And arguably, it's the second oldest PA program in the country, arguably, because anyway, it's right after Duke. And uh, Duke's <laughs> just down the road. And uh, I when I was a child, in the 60s, I literally rode my bicycle around on that campus, and I thought, who are these people? And, and then I met somebody. And, you know, the, the profession did begin here in North Carolina, where I'm from and where I've moved back to recently. It, it was never all that mysterious because I, for a lot of people, they don't hear about PAs until they're well into adulthood or they're looking for, you know, what their opportunities might be in terms of medicine. But I always knew PAs existed. I always knew that we were here, and I always knew what we did. And growing up here, it just sounds ridiculous, but I had a propensity for, for saving lives. <laughs> there would okay. be a, yeah, seriously, I, I, for instance, I'll give you some examples or yeah. otherwise it'll just remain a kind of an odd thing to say. Sure. I was in sixth grade and the teacher had left the room and the kid started choking on a quarter. I mean, he was really choking, like, and yeah. uh, he was smaller than me, which is hard to imagine because I'm pretty small. But at that time he was smaller. I went over turned him upside down, shook him like a, like a piggy bank. And the quarter came out and he vomited and he was okay. And when the teacher came back in, nobody said a word because we were worried about getting <laughs> And I was, um, you know, along about the, that same time, I was in an extremely crowded public pool, Parkland pool, which is about two miles from here. And I, uh, it, it was almost elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder. It gets hot here in North Carolina. And I, and I stepped on, like I started a trip. The water was about chesty, tripped over, and I looked down, and there was a body on the bottom of the pool. I lifted that little girl up, put her on the side, and started shaking her. And by the time, she was out. She was out. She wasn't breathing and shaking wow. her. And, um, and so a couple of lifeguards came over and took over. And again, I just melted back into the crowd. 
so I I felt like, you know, well, it, honestly, it keeps happening. But those are my two childhood stories. So I decided to become a lifeguard. And, you know, after a lifeguard, it, they, they let you take junior life-saving at age 11. I started getting paid for it by age 15, you know, watching people in the water, you know, more water rescues and over a period of 10 years that I can even go into. But um, from lifeguard to uh, EMT and then, uh, you know, finishing up. And so I was obviously going to go into emergency medicine. I obviously felt like some sort of shepherd and <laughs> the shepherd people <laughs> always at the right place at the right time or people or people are in the wrong place and they're happy, they happen <laughs> to be near me but um you know the emergencies i've seen on trains planes and automobiles i i could uh, completely wreck this whole conversation by going on and on and on about uh, sure. how this seems to happen to me and uh, you know i've i'm on airplanes a lot because of my work but you know this and that would happen on an airplane. I would, you know, get the person stabilized. And I absolutely, probably one of the few civilian flyers that really know what's in a, an emergency kit in an airplane. Not enough, let me tell you. But, but yeah, they, they just keep happening. And, and quite often they happen at my work, but they're supposed to happen at my work. They happen yeah. in my private life. Hmm. And so well, that, that is fortunate, fortunate for those around you. <laughs> and uh, this is a lot of this happened before there were AEDs. Uh, the Museum of Modern Art in New York. I was just minding my own business, looking at modern art. Guy collapses right there. I start CPR. That was after I learned CPR. The first couple of rescues, I didn't know the Heimlich or CPR yet. The Metropolitan, you know, New York, and start CPR. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's it's the right thing to do to fall out in front of me. Yeah, it seems like the universe likes to use you as a pawn in the right spot. That's <laughs> that's good. Of course, I was going to go to PA School of Engineering. Uh, went to Carolina. I'm a Tar Heel. And um, uh, I was there during the same years as Michael Jordan, and um, I was in the Army, and um, a lot happened in the Army. Went to Virginia Tech, got my master's in um, cardiac rehabilitation, and I was so bored that all I wanted to do was volunteer on the back of an ambulance to kind of, you know, take my being back into myself after, you know, working in cardiac rehab. It was going to kill me with boredom. So I looked into medical school, looked into chiropractic school, looked into nursing even. Ended up at PA school in Wake Forest, right back where my parents still were at that time. They were very much alive at that time. Mm-hmm. My dad said he would uh, plant another row of potatoes because I'm coming home. <laughs> and I hadn't been home since, you know, high school. So, uh, sure. and I, I guess he did because I never went hungry and somehow completed that rigorous, intensive program here at Wake. And so after Wake, what was your next step? What did you decide to do clinically? I, it sounds like emergency medicine was a natural fit. Emergency medicine was natural. I uh, had the absolute privilege to uh, go to Bridgeport Hospital in Bridgeport, Connecticut, where I had done two rotations, three rotations as a student. I did an ER rotation, a trauma rotation, and a surgical rotation there, and they hired me And um, as a new grad in the level one trauma. And uh, they put me in staff rotation with the ER residents. And so I was treated just like an ER resident, medical doctor uh, resident and with the same low pay i was making forty thousand dollars a year and mm-hmm. uh, with housing in the hospital and with a ridiculous schedule which you know i loved i was eating it up the learning curve was so steep and everything came through those doors everything and and there was you know i learned what a pa does we take the next chart that's what we do and yeah. i signed out every case and a, a, an attending doctor you know would just grill me on why did you order that CDC? <laughs> right? I mean, that's really not my problem these days. But, you know, in those days, you had to justify every CDC. You had to justify. In order to get a CAT scan, you had to uh, pretty much offer your firstborn. And so, but you had to uh, back up all your clinical judgment every time. I did that for three years. And um, at that point, you know, a lot of my uh, ER residency colleagues were starting to you know, leave and uh, go on with their lives. And after three years, I'd learned so much. Connecticut is is not my home, and uh, yeah. and I'm it, I didn't fit in there at all like, culturally. Um, mm. But I was too busy for it to matter, really. Um, sure. So I had a little money in my pocket at that point. You know, forty thousand dollars when they're feeding you and housing you, and you have nowhere to go to spend it because uh, you're at work all the time. I um, took off for Arizona. Okay. And and in Arizona, is this is this the point where you chose to start doing some mission work, or well, or was not that quite a little yet. later? 
Okay. I had to uh, pay off my loans. I had taken out some private loans from family members to go to PA school. And uh, even though I ended up always working in underserved places, I okay. anyway, I'd, I'd done the private route because I, I mean, it was just easy. And at the time, PA school wasn't that expensive. I took out $28,000 in loans and I can hear some young people just growing <laughs> oh, right now. They're not happy right now. Yeah. But you got to understand, you know, we didn't make more than $60,000 tops in those days. I mean, that was pretty much the going rate, no matter what you did. And but what happened during that time is we began to get our, our independent licensing. And certainly we weren't independent. We still had uh, collaborating physicians, supervising physicians, but, but we did have our own license number at that time. And so I, I wasn't quite ready to start peace work yet. And I wasn't quite ready to start doing the remote rural ER work yet. But what I did was um, several years more in Arizona with level two traumas where, mm-hmm. you know, they really, truly really utilize PAs to, to our extent. Sure. And, and right there in Phoenix with two hospitals that no longer exist, Phoenix Memorial and uh, Maryville. And they were both just fighting grounds. I mean, they were all sorts of gang trauma in those days, um, drugs and alcohol causing all sorts of uh, chaos in those communities. And then when I reached 40, which at this point is 23 years ago, that's when I had things paid off and mm-hmm. really no debts to my name and just the, the cost of living. And that's when I started Peacework Medical. And really, the reason I started Peacework Medical is, is multi People think, ah, oh, it's because, it, you know, you're a humanitarian and of course you're going to find a way to uh, to serve others as a volunteer. Sure, that's true. There's more. I I wanted to volunteer internationally as a PA. And in the year 1999, 2000-ish, they didn't know what to do with us. Uh, I would yeah. I would get responses back that were like, well, you can come be a nurse. You don't want me to be your nurse. I'm not a nurse. I don't know how to be a nurse. Okay, well then you can come and, and be our administrator. Well, you know, I could probably wing it as an administrator, I, but that's not what I do. I do yeah, what this. a waste of talent. Well, it just, you know, just a, a misdirection in terms of skills. And so, I mean, these people needed providers. They didn't know what to do with a PA. And so I uh, wanted this adventure of adventuring into foreign lands and going where other people didn't want to go and treating uh, cultures that were different from my own. And um, so I created, I, I made my own nonprofit, Peacework Medical. And the first group were all people I knew through ERs. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were nine of us that went to Honduras. It was shortly after Hurricane Mitch had uh, you know wreaked havoc and um, you just wipe the soil off off the face of the earth there. And soil is how they make a life with bananas and plantains and coffee. Yeah. So these people were devastated. A lot had been killed in the uh, rivers there. A lot of mudslides and houses had been moved in. But we, we moved in there, uh, the, the nine of us, all of us ER folks and all of us people who knew me. And it was very personal. It was like going on a major camping trip with eight of your best buddies who, uh, you know, do anything. The thing about ER people is that we are jack of all trades. We know a little bit of everything, pretty much not surgery, but you know, sure. we, we are we are only masters of you know certain emergency procedures and resuscitations and that sort of thing. But we are a jack of all trades. Everything from sprained ankles to sore throats to you know what's this bump on my shoulder. We, we do it all. And everybody that's ever worked in emergency medicine knows probably the least of what we do is actual emergencies. And so otherwise it's primary care and internal medicine care and pediatrics and psychiatry and toxicology. And so we went to Honduras and literally shoveled mud out of a structure that uh, had been a government structure, which, uh, you know, the authorities left behind because it was right on the river. And uh, we shoveled out the mud that was ankle deep uh, in order to, uh, to make our first clinic. And uh, a baby was born. Was this in Tegucigalpa? No, um, way north of Tegucigalpa. San Pedro Sula is a city sure. that's north in the northern part. Well, we weren't there either. That's where we flew into. And then we went eastward toward El Pagreso and then further eastward into the mountains. I mean, we were nowhere. We were on the San Francisco River. And if you look at a map of, of Honduras and you find La Ceiba, which is way up on the, uh, the northern coast, we would, as the crow flies, we would be 150-ish miles south of there. There are no roads going in that direction, but, but as the crow flies, we're, we're, we would be pretty much due south of La Ceiba. Yeah, know, so I was in Honduras in 2000, 
2001, 2002. I, I was there four times. So I was there shortly after Hurricane Mitch in 2000. Because I think it was 98, wasn't it, when the hurricane hit? Yeah, Mitch was in 98. Yeah. But I was at Tegucigalpa. So it had to be because I saw the devastation along the riverbeds and, you know, the bridges were out and and the the impact of that in a major in the major city for the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't even imagine how bad it was up north. It was rough up there. I mean, these are very steep, very steep terrain, uh, which is best for coffee growing, but but hard if when a mudslide comes. And then the San Francisco River is quite wide and deep. And um, when we arrived there a year, a full year after Mitch, people were still wearing the clothes that they had had on the day the the event happened. And there's a lot of a lot of depressed folks just you know depressed affect anyway and yeah. um and the animals were starving that i had never seen hip bones on a hog till i got there and ribs yeah. and uh cattle with ribs and hip bones poking out it looked like they were going to poke right through the skin and their animals were dying and uh and they were in a way i think spiritually dying they were those that survived weren't doing well yeah. And of course, they they were suspicious of us. Like, who are these white people? And that's a good question. And so we had to make inroads with, um, you know, first you, you go with teachers. I go with teachers. And uh, then I go with clergy. And then I go with mothers. Because that is the way to make inroads. If you if you just you just want to talk to the regular coffee picker dude who's 36 years old, and he doesn't really want to talk to you. But right. But teachers, clergy, and moms, they look to the future. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Uh, we're a secular organization. We've always not had anything to do with faith-based care, with faith-based efforts. We still would align ourselves with clergy just because they had the ear of the people. Sure. Just because we're secular doesn't mean we have any any uh, particular attitude um, about people who, who do follow the non-secular route and do faith-based work. That's wonderful. But, uh, but we didn't. We don't. And uh, but we've always, always aligned ourselves uh, with uh, with people of faith and uh, in the places we go. Otherwise, we would have never gotten to the point of, um, you know, the respect and acceptance that we needed to do the work we wanted to do. Right. Because respect goes both ways. You're, you're respecting their culture and what they place a, an emphasis on. I mean, when I was there, the men were very skeptical of us, mm-hmm. but the mothers, because they have this, this you know, maternal instinct to protect their kids and they see an opportunity to get their kids some vitamins or medication mm-hmm. for what, whatever, they're a little bit more willing to go, go with the trust account for you. And Well, they'll listen. So, they definitely will. They'll listen to the whole story and engage in conversation and dialogue you know i would recon a place for a year before i ever took down i just i mean i think i made it might have made it sound that i just showed up with eight of my buddies but the yeah. truth is i would recon a place for a year and often make several trips and always have of course a liaison with me my spanish isn't that good i always have a liaison with me in order to make these inroads and and make these promises that i kept mm-hmm. and that's key because these in every place we ever worked, these folks had been led down some paths and didn't um, result in anything successful for them. And sure. so they were skeptical for a reason. And every place we've ever worked with Peacework Medical has either been a natural and or man-made disaster area. And so these, you know, they're they're just often just trying to get by and suspicious, rightfully suspicious of uh, helper groups. So, but we stayed there in Honduras for eight years, and and during that time, uh, sure, we did primary care. But I think I think primary care is almost adjacent to the important stuff, and the important stuff is building resources that community leaders can then tap into and bring into that community. And by the time we left, they knew how to compel their regional government and their national government to do things that they well deserve in that area. And how to uh, literally write grants. I, I thought um, a, a rather literate uh, gentleman about age 20 um, who, uh, who was becoming a teacher, who to write grants to and how to write them. And, and he was having some success. At that point, the children were no longer starving. The animals were beginning to be able to reproduce. After eight years, it was time to go. And, yeah. you know, it's always sad to go. 
uh, you've made connections at that point, and it would just be easy to keep going. Just like it's easy to go to a job you've had for 22 years, you know? Yeah. And, but no, it was time to go. So it sounds like the what you're saying, what I hear you saying is the importance of public health, community health, but equipping the leaders of the community to be able to be the ones to deliver this yep. so that there's validity in that process and continuity of health care measures that really impact those uh, patients uh, long term. Absolutely. And what had happened by the time we were ready to leave is they had managed, especially with the help of this 20 year old, to get a, an itinerant medical doctor out there who came out from um, El Progreso. And he certainly didn't live there. But he made, I think, quarterly visits for days at a time, and they had a place to put him up and a way to feed him and everything. And uh, that was a light year away from where they had been previously because it, we were only showing up once a year. So everybody had full-time jobs, including myself at that. But, but we had taught them how to, to fare for themselves. And, yeah. uh, and the other thing we introduced there, which was pretty amazing, was pap smears. And, you know, cervical cancer was I, I was just reading medical demographics and um, uh, data about what was going on there in that part of the country with cervical cancer. And that's odd that this is so bad. If you dig a little deeper and you find out nobody's getting screening, nobody. And so we instituted it. And, you know, part of the grant that I managed at the time was to totally equip us to do 100, you know, every two to three days, 100 and have somebody drive up from El Progreso and take the pathology back. And, and then a way to find these women. And these women don't have addresses. They have, no. you know, they have a location on the river or a location up the mountain. Oh my God. So I had to uh, get a, a local person who did nothing but be dedicated to get these results back to the women and then get the positives that needed further care back to El Progreso. And yeah. but the first and foremost, you have to realize I was I was attempting me and my colleagues were attempting to do passengers on women who had never thought of such a like right. what? And so we got the big what do you mean? And uh you are you serious? And so yeah, we were serious and we cajoled a lot of women into this and, and you can imagine how that that went. We do this a lot, even even here in the United States, you have to cajole some women into these screening tests. But it it was harder than that because they had no context for what we wanted to do and why we wanted. And uh, well, we so 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 much a part of that trust building, right? You probably didn't do that in your first year doing this. No. Um, it, but once you once you're well known to the community, they're willing to to give you some latitude. Something I learned in being in ten different countries. Something happens on the third year. <laughs> I, I think they realize you're coming back. Uh -huh. They uh, they realize you're okay. You're not pulling any stunts and you don't want anything from them ex except yeah. just mutual respect, dignity. And something happens in the third year. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we would say years beyond that, of course, because it, you just start to hit your stride at, at the third year. And that's, it would be the fourth year if you count my recon, but third mm -hmm. year with teams. Yeah. And so you took all those learning lessons that you received in Honduras and you went, where did right you Right next door to Belize, right okay. next door to Belize. And it was a, a really a lot different in Belize in so many ways. Belize uh, calls itself a Central American country. There are five. Collects itself in with the Central American countries, but it has behavior and culture of a Caribbean country. Mm -hmm. English there with a uh, Caribbean type of accent. Um, and that's my reductive way of explaining it. I'm sure it's more it's a linguist. It would be more complex than that. But sure. it's that beautiful lilting English. And in Belize City, we did not go out to the far countryside and sleep in tents. We worked in the gang areas of the city because wow. people were not receiving any medical care in the gang areas because of the um, these these places just did not allow for infrastructure and healthcare yeah. is a part of infrastructure. And so we went in there. We would go in every day with armed guards, and then yeah. we would set up in a school. And, and, you know, it was always fun to have kids around, but that's a blessing and a curse, really, when you're trying to run a clinic. But um, it was different in Belize. But, you know, we stayed in Belize for years. And, you know, people love to go there because, first of all, you don't have to have an interpreter. Second of all, you, you can get to the beach, which is beautiful. And, um, and we did our work there. Then we went on to Ghana, West Africa. 
mm-hmm. and went out to a village. We were once again back in tents and sleeping on a soccer field, a soccer pitch that was right beside a true, honest jungle in every sense of the, you know, Hollywood way you expect the jungle to look. If you've yeah. watched movies, this is the way that jungle looked. And wow. we slept right next to it heard monkeys and all sorts of carrying on during the night in that jungle. We don't know what it was, uh, sure. some animals carrying on. And the, uh, I've, I've literally been all over the world several times and I had never, ever been in a thunderstorm like I was in, in Ghana, in that village. It was the most amazing thing. I mean, I love thunderstorms. I love monsoons in Arizona. I love these summer storms we get here in North Carolina that I live here now. This was this was an absolute two standard deviations beyond any storm I'd ever. Wow. Wow. The lightning was so long and it was continuous that you would you would just have light for seconds and seconds and seconds at a time. The thunder was so loud that you couldn't hear yourself yell because we were yelling at each other like who's drowning. And and the water was so deep that they found calves and lambs somewhere else. Um, yeah. the, the men of the village did had been washed away and were still, you know, yowling like the way little animals will yowl. Yeah. And the next morning, yeah. when the sun came up, every tent got flattened, and I, it, I just loved it. It was the best storm I'd ever been in, uh-huh. and uh, you know, we were all soaked. <laughs> That's great. That's great. And you also were in Haiti too at one point, as oh. I recall. My goodness, Haiti, Haiti might be our, our kind of signature country. Um, mm-hmm. I think when a country needs so much that no matter what you do, you can see that there are um, there's progress being made because there's so much progress that could be made. We went down there four months after the earthquake that everybody remembers, I hope. The earthquake was January 12th, 2010, and I went down for recon that May. And uh, of course, went into Port-au-Prince because that's where you fly into. And I uh, met up with a liaison, uh, a, an American woman who happened to be a missionary. But again, I don't have anything against missionaries. They can do great work. But she was there for missionary work. And and so she met me there in Port-au-Prince. And, and I said, what I really need is an interpreter because I don't speak Haitian Creole. Not all the Haitians speak Spanish. And my French is high school French. And uh, French is the is the, the language of the country, but a lot of common people speak Haitian Creole. Sure. So I needed someone that spoke, at the very least, Haitian Creole in English. Well, she said, I got just right. I got the guy for you. I got the guy. And so she connected me with, with Edelin, and, and we became, he, he spoke, he was like 24 at the time, spoke excellent English. Haitian Creole was his native language, and he spoke French because it's the language of an educated person sure. and, in, in Haiti. And he spoke Spanish because as a teenager, his dad had had him working in Dominican ER, which is on wow. the same island. So he, yeah. he was quadrilingual and, and, and quite the, um, the motorcycle rider, too, because I was on the back of many motorcycles with him. So he said, you don't need to stay in Port-au-Prince. You don't need to stay in Jack Mel. You don't stay, need to stay in um, all these other little places around Port-au-Prince. And I go, OK, wh- where do I need to stay? And he goes, you need to come to my hometown. And I naively said, Edlin, where's your hometown? And it was so far away. It was uh, six hours over land, way oh in the north. But I agreed to go with him. Uh, yeah. We were on a motorcycle. I, my butt was so bruised for days and days and days. And because it, let's just not say this, this was not a comfy motorcycle. This was a pretty, yeah. you know, one I would have ridden as a 12-year-old. We made it up there. And it was a dirt bike. And I kept slipping back onto the metal rack, but I made it. And we got up there to this place called Rankeet. Rankeet was the name of the village. It's also the name of the region. The area, and the reason he wanted me to come there is because the population of Rankeet had increased by 400% because people fleeing the uh, Port-au-Prince area. Sure. They were coming home to their auntie or coming home to where they had once lived. They, their cousin was there. Edlin's whole family was there. and He'd been in Port-au-Prince and had, had survived the earthquake by surfing on the top of a building all the way down because he happened to be on the top of a building, hanging his clothes to dry. Everybody in the building was crushed. So here we have a person that was meant to be alive. And I felt like I was pretty lucky at that point to meet him. So I spent a year reconning in Mankeet and made a team. We started going cholera hit by December December of 2010, the way I remember it, cholera had happened. I didn't have a team yet. So I went back down there with um, uh, literally a suitcase full. <laughs> I'm looking at a suitcase. 
suitcase full of doxycycline because you only need three doxycycline tablets to treat this um, uh, strain of, uh, you know, it, it, you don't treat it with uh, azithromycin and Bactrim, which is, you know, the way you might treat it in the uh, uh, this hemisphere because it had been brought in by someone from Southeast Asia. Oh, Zero was okay. in Southeast Asia. So I took down literally, you know, you know, 70 pounds of oxy that was um, donated to Peacework Medical from uh, Advantage Urgent Care, a uh, urgent care I own in Phoenix, which is another story. And um, yeah, and three pills. If the person could swallow three pills, the next morning they were eating breakfast. And, you know, otherwise they were dying of cholera. I mean, vomit, diarrhea, dying. Yeah. And, you know, Doctors Without Borders had come through there, dumped a bunch of fluids and left, normal saline. And the one nurse in the region was hyperhydrating these people with too much normal saline. And they were literally, you know, like drowning. Uh, Their lungs and heart were overcome by too much fluid because she kept giving them fluid, giving them fluid. You know, these nurses aren't trained to standards that we appreciate. Yeah. So. If they didn't die from cholera, they were they were dying because they couldn't breathe. And so I would get, you know, they, there was a tent set up because Medicine Sans Frontier, Doctors Without Borders, had set up a tent and taught people how to, you know, clean their shoes and hands before they entered. That was fantastic. But they didn't stay to teach anybody anything. So they had this mountain of fluids. And that was it. And so we started in with this doxy. It was a roaring success. And then we had to clean up the water table. Um, I'm not a hydrologist. I'm not a chemist. I'm not even good with math, but we had to clean up that water table because every time they drank out of their springs, they drank straight out of the springs, you know, people were getting infected uh, because, you know, that's how this disease got all around the country so fast because the the water table. So what we did was we started building um, cement holding tanks. Like imagine the size of your stove, your range in your kitchen, or the size of your refrigerator, if it was on its side, and capturing the water coming out of the uh, hillside, Mm -hmm. uh, plugging it, treating it with a little bit of chlorine, just enough to clean it up, and then letting the village have it again. You know, this whole process would take less than a day. And these tanks cost us about $500 to build. We taught the local man how to build. And then um, the in each village, a local, and there were 22 villages, the local women, usually a woman, point person, would be the steward of the water tank. Like when to lock it, when to unlock it, how much chlorine, because none of the men wanted to do the math. There's a little bit of math problem with how much chlorine to put in based on the size of the tank, of course. And, uh, and the size of the tank was based on the water flow coming out of the mountain. Within a couple of years, there was no cholera in that region. Cholera still existed everywhere else. So, um, that wow, was, uh, that is something to be really proud of. It was. And to, to watch it happen in slow motion over time was something. The, um, the reason I needed to leave Haiti is not because I come to Phoenix and do, to continue to do work in Phoenix. Was not because the water tanks were a success, not because our health education was around cholera was a success. I mean, it was, but that wasn't a reason to leave. I think I would have stayed longer. But I had started my transition from female to male, and Haiti was not a place to be in transition. It just wasn't. I, um, I can't even imagine. It wasn't. So I think I, um, like the first year when you're sort of androgynous appearing, and I didn't really have my hair cut yet. It was shorter, wow. but I mean, I was starting to get questions. And uh, like, is my health okay? I, I don't think they understand thyroid disease, but you know, I looked like I had a thyroid disorder. I was, I was looking sure. more and more masculine all the time. And uh-huh. um, so I wrapped it up there. And brought the whole bundle to uh, Phoenix, where I lived at the time, uh, and then immediately got to work on this uh, ice detention problem where they would hold transgender women in men's cells, and they would be uh, attacked, both by the guards and by uh, other inmates. And so those became my first patients. You know, I started with six, and I left Phoenix with 188. Was it in Haiti that you made the decision to start the transition? No, I was in Iraq. I was working okay. in Iraq. Uh, I was a contractor there uh, with the CIA. And the CIA folks were uh, very polite and kind, but, you know, they, they didn't need to give me any care. Uh, as a PA, I was, I was just part of this. And so I guess I'd been there already five years when I started to change. And I would be 60 days on, 60 days off, sometimes 120 days off, but then 60 days on. And, and every time I would come back after my 60 days off, I was looking more and more masculine. The, the fantastic thing is that, when I started this process of transition in uh, very, very late 2014, the chief of the base 
said, yes, I don't know the answers, but you could buy me and I'm going to check with DC. DC got back and they said, go for it. And uh, to make a paraphrase, uh, that's not the way they talk, but uh, I had the green light that, you know, I wasn't going to lose my job over this. I had my new passport using my name, Joseph, not my old name, uh, with these guys because I had a diplomatic passport. Yeah. Before I ever got my name updated in Arizona. I mean, they were so fast. Wow. And they completely just never gave me a hard time. In fact, we're quite supportive. And the military people, I'm, I know for a fact that their leader said, you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. And yeah. and they, you know, they listen to orders. And so I never got any blowback from um, people on the military side. And then, of course, the people on the, uh, the professional side, they just had questions, which I was happy to answer, which became yeah. sort of my my stock in trade to answer questions about uh, transgender people. I don't speak for all transgender people, but certainly can speak of, to my own experience and answer some questions uh, about being transgender in general, having uh, been in a peer support group for eight years of all sorts. You know, special operators, uh, when I was in the, the Navy, I, I had the privilege of working with the SEALs as a, we were basically an Uber, Uber helicopter unit for the SEALs, but they're just so intelligent yeah. special operators. And so that doesn't surprise me that they were interested, intrigued, more, more accepting, um, mm. more supportive. And, and, you know, for those who don't understand the military, a medical person is worth their weight in gold anyways. So you always treat your medical people well because you may need them one day. Yeah. I was tremendously respected by those guys. And, uh, and it's true. My, uh, uh, a special warfare operator, which is what they call it these days. We, Locally, it would say SEALs, Rangers, PJs in the Air Force, um, mm -hmm. Green Beret. Collectively, it would be a special warfare operator. And you know, special forces is, I think, the uh, the colloquial term. And you got to have a little bit of everything going on. And, I mean, you have to have you have to be able to draw from a lot of different parts of your brain and uh, be be ready to do it on a turn of a dime. So I had tremendous respect for those guys. And, and, uh, and, and they I completely transitioned in front of them and over a period of years. Uh, so, and, and I would just say from, from, you know, hearing your story many times now, the grit that you have, you know, to, to, and the audacity to some extent, right, <laughs> Joseph, because you did, you chose to do this in a place that is as masculine as you can get. Yeah. And, yep. and, uh, and, you know, the, kudos to you for that. Um, I know, I know your first go around with your army wasn't quite as comfortable, Right. Um, I had to, so how cool is that to come back and be working with the state? Right. It was, well, it was it was finishing up a job I didn't get to finish the first time, as you know, and maybe even some people listening to this know, because it's a story that's been out there for years. Um, as a female bodied person, as a lesbian, I, I was psychologically tortured uh, to get names of other gays and lesbians uh, yeah. when I was a mere 21 years old, turned 22 and um, four months and uh, and had no freedom for four months at all. And. And, and, and then discharged, uh, unceremoniously uh, discharged uh, with a general discharge, our election of duty, homosexual act. And so I had that upgraded. It took a year to do it. And, you know, based on my prior record, I, I, I think it helped tremendously to have that prior record of that. I went before these hearings, before these boards as a 22-year-old, uh, not mm -hmm. having finished college yet, and, and just, you know, made my case that I deserve an honorable discharge. And, and I got it. And so uh, it's been wonderful to have that because you, you don't want that dog in you, something that, first of all, you don't deserve. And second of all, um, you can be pretty rough if you, if you, uh, you need an honorable discharge served honorably. And uh, yeah, you wouldn't have been able to work with the CIA if you hadn't had that, right? A lot of, a lot of doors wouldn't have opened. Yeah. And uh, but the least of which would have been, I wouldn't have been able to get my clearance back. And, yeah. um, and, uh, and many jobs I've had, since then have uh, demanded a clearance, uh, security clearance of some level, either general, you know, secret, top secret. Uh, I've never had top secret with access bias, but I've had, you know, others. And, and I, you know, it'd be wrong, but I don't think I would have gotten those clearances without an honorable discharge. It was certainly not in that day and age, I would imagine, but right. maybe things have changed. I, I, one can hope. So there's a lot to unpack. And obviously, <laughs> you, I've told you before, you need to write a book. This is so interesting. Let's talk about the work that you did in Phoenix with Peacework with the asylum seekers, because I think right now in this day and age, people struggle with understanding immigration. 
Mm-hmm. And they don't understand, you know, what it means to be transgender in or transitioning in Central America, South America, or Mexico, and, and how dangerous that can be. And your organization, you already alluded to the dangers even here in the United States in our holding cells. So can you talk about what that was like for you as you were transitioning and now you're also shifting piecework to be caring for these humans coming across the border that are being tortured elsewhere? Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to talk about that. Just like the water tanks in Haiti didn't really fall under the purview of primary care, but yet it had to be done uh, for the health and welfare and well-being of this whole region. It's helping these women, mostly women, there were a few men too, transgender men and women, helping them with their asylum cases, residency in the United States, legal residency, was really akin to the water tanks. Not primary care, but we had to do it for the holistic care of these people. So if you are transgender in, let's say, Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Honduras, um, the government will not protect you in any way. There are no protections. of, And the transphobia leads to beatings and death. And it's commonplace. Last year, and we know this every November 20th was this trans day of remembrance. Whatever day November 20th falls on, that is TIDOR, trans day of remembrance. We know when we read these names of people killed just in the Western Hemisphere, out of 400 or so people who are killed every year in what's labeled as a transgender hate crime, almost all of them are women, transgender women, and almost all of them have Latino names, and maybe six will be from the United States, and the rest are from these Northern Triangle countries, Puerto Rico, Cuba, and their names somehow make it to this roster of, of, of having their name called out on November 20th. So we needed a way to keep these women from being deported. And the we work working with the ACLU and working with Transcore Pueblo, which is a social justice organization in Phoenix, we found that being able to prove through medical records, which are, you know, legal records, right? We are all taught that in PA school. These are medical legal documents. So by Treating this woman for her gender dysphoria, claiming in medical records that uh, she is transgender, and then in an ongoing fashion over a period of weeks and months treating her, then with her approval, of course, because HIPAA still applies, turning right. those records over to the ACLU, we were almost 100% in getting asylum for these folks. That's amazing. I mean, amazing. tens and tens, maybe dozens, but certainly up to 100 people at this point. And, uh, and that's with the help of uh, Transcorp Pueblo and and ACLU there locally in Phoenix. Tremendously rewarding. They continue to be our patients, of course, continue to transition. And um, and now with a green card, which saves their life. I mean, you can't do anything in primary care that's more important than keeping someone from going back and being killed in the street. The the primary health issues that you face as you transition in and of itself is significant. And then to do so under the auspices of that danger and, and certainly, you know, the literature certainly talks about sex workers and the danger to sex workers mm-hmm. and the mental and social challenges of that transition, the familial challenges of that transition. So it is, I think, primary. It's it, it's it's whole person care, right? Yeah, it's whole person primary health care. You know, it's it's not your amoxicillin and Tylenol, but it is whole person care, just as certainly as medicine is is part of the the general care. Transport Pueblo and our clinic really made a. a a community for people. You know, when you or I go to the doctor, we want in and out of there as fast as possible. We don't want to sit in the waiting room. We want care and out. These folks would bring food to the waiting room. They wouldn't leave all day. <laughs> we would have an entire, you know, potluck every time we met. And yeah. um, and people wouldn't leave the waiting room. It was that's because it's a safe community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and yeah, just hang out. You know, we'd be there all day. They'd be there all day. Or at least or, oh, cool. you know, oh, it was great. It was great. And, um, you know, leaving that to come to um, here to North Carolina was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. You know, short of burying a dog, um, yeah. you know, leaving that community was gut wrenching. And uh, the going away festivities on the day that Pam and I, my wife, Amira Burns, and I left that she's the administrator for all things peace work. It, <laughs> To say there were tears would be an understatement. There, there oh, was yeah. pandemonium among the group in terms of, you know, just heartfelt, heartfelt wishes. 
And I think one of the things for me, having watched you present to my students at USC about trans care and about your own transition and about how simple, I mean, really simple it is <laughs> yeah. to be a primary care provider and to support somebody transitioning. You know, it's not as complex as everybody seems to think yeah. it is. Yeah. And what I love Protocol about that is... Yeah, and I love about it is that the lights go on in all of these mm-hmm. future healthcare providers' heads, and now they want to go work over in Phoenix and help your organization, and and they and they're they're empowered to actually make a difference. I think about Cooper Couch from, yeah. you know, he he was from president for the class a few years ago, who was doing trans care in Colorado before he recently moved, and so you know the wake that you left behind, Joseph, is so big. And it's going to continue to to expand. I'm just so happy for you and for it's, all the it's patients. It's so rewarding. It's so rewarding. Yeah. And that, that might be the, you know, way more than anything I might have amassed because of paychecks. I mean, that reward of of knowing I leave behind a generation of humanitarians. I've seen them grow in 20, 22 years now. Seeing these young humanitarians, because we've always been driven by by the younger crowd, you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and I'm here at Wake Forest now, and, and uh, they've invited me to speak. I've already spoken happy to you know sue reich who was there uh was a pa in the program when i was there in the early yeah. 90s which yeah. is remarkable she doesn't age and she's she still good at what she does and so um and she's helped fundraise for, for medical too. she actually came to haiti with us that's fantastic yeah so that's fantastic so, so to be right i'm not letting up on on the young people they're still they're still going to be the, the driving force they're idealistic they're smart I wouldn't want to try to get into PA school today, these kids. I wouldn't want to compete with them, um, but yet I get to uh, have them as volunteers. Yeah. So we're going to have a bunch of resources on our website for the clinicians that are listening and the students who are interested in learning how to take care of patients who are in transition. Um, You've been very generous with giving us lots of resources to share, so we'll make sure that's on the site. I guess as we wrap up, uh, Joseph, as you look back over the course of your PA career, you know, are there are there things that you wish you had done differently? Are are you pretty satisfied with kind of the way things all landed? Wow, what a what a great question. To answer the last part first, I am incredibly happy about the way things have landed, uh, and that would suggest absolutely no regrets. You know, it's not like I had a grand plan. I, mm-hmm. I wanted to be an emergency PA, and I ended up being a, an austere remote ER provider which therefore I end up doing everything else. I guess my only kind of, I don't know how trivial this sounds to you or to anyone else, but I wish I had better nursing skill. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I was better at IVs. I wish I was better at needles, at, you know, blood draws. Um, uh, I wish I, I knew off the top of my head how to mix a medicine or which medicines don't mix together because I'm alone a lot, especially in yeah. Alaska. And so I have to uh, rely on, you know, pretty rudimentary skills in those areas. Sure, I can do a blood draw. Sure, I can start an IV. But a nurse gets it the first stick and I get it the second stick. You know, yeah. I just don't do enough. And we were never, well, we were taught blood draws at Wake, but um, it was known as Bowman Grade. And I, I really wish, I, I think I would be more well-rounded mm-hmm. if I had better, because I work where there are no nurses uh, in Alaska. Uh, and I think that's what brings that, that idea up. I can be a better nurse. Um, it'd probably be a better PA, but um, PA thing worked out. But when I'm when I'm faced with nursing challenges, sometimes I have to go look something up. And uh, anyway, that's all right. And, and I'll just say uh, as a point to that, I think students who are listening, the nurses on their rotation will give their heart and soul to them to teach if they're given the respect that they deserve mm-hmm. by the students. And I think so often students think, well, that's not me. I'm going to be a provider, I'm more like a doctor. But but to your point, I think the nurses can teach you so much. So I wonder if we can just close with with one last pearl of wisdom, which is for for the PA educators, the PAs, yeah, and just the you know the humans listening to this podcast. How do we best support our colleagues, friends, and patients who are in that process of wanting to come out? What what are the things we can do to uh, to really support them and, and help them? And when someone you know is coming out as transgender or non-binary, uh, which is a subset of or maybe a corollary to transgender the first thing is i'm so happy for you just say i'm so happy for you if someone announces to you that they're trans or non-binary i am so happy for you and uh what name do you use if you don't already know what pronouns do you use if you don't already know um 
And uh, do you have good support? Is your family and friends and coworkers, or do you have support? That's a way to start. I mean, that's a, that's a mouthful. And you might not need to know all those yeah. answers because you might already know. But uh, it, it starts with, I'm so happy for you. Because yeah. first of all, it's an incredibly happy thing to have happen to you. Right? It's a privilege transition. And it, it makes your life whole and full. And I was, you know, doing an okay job at, at being female body, but uh, I didn't know what I didn't know. And now that I do know what I know, I, I'm, you know, what we call um, gender euphoria, uh, which is the opposite of gender dysphoria, which, of course, is the uh, diagnosis. Being transgender is not a diagnosis. It's not a, a pathology in any way. But gender dysphoria is a uh, is diagnosis, the ICD-9 that we, we work with. So uh, after someone starts to transition, you will see gender euphoria, especially when they yeah. start to see changes and other people start to see their changes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's to be celebrated and it comes down to acceptance and respect. Mm -hmm. It does. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, if someone told you they're getting married, what would you say? I'm happy for you. If someone yeah. told you, you know, that they're going to have a, a baby, of course, that's what you would say. This is as monumental. As, as those life-changing events. And, uh, and, and so just support that person with, with your uh, collegiality. You know, I'm in there with you. I'm in there with yeah. you. That Say that sort of thing, and that makes you an ally. That's the first step to being an ally. There's lots of different ally-type books out there, but probably the best one is free, Our Trans Loved Ones. It's a uh, paperback. You can get in paperback, or you can get it downloaded electronically from the mm -hmm. PFLAG website, PFLAG.org. And uh, they have it. It's an easy read. And anyone that wants to support a uh, trans loved one or friend or coworker, good, solid, basic stuff. Fantastic. That's awesome. I, we could talk for, we could have seven episodes just with your stories from all of your places you've worked, <laughs> Joseph. So thank you very much for sharing your time and your stories. And uh, as always, I just so appreciate everything that you're doing for us, our world and for our PA community as well. So I wish you the best with your new transition to North Carolina. Thank you. And uh, it's always a pleasure to see you, Kevin, and uh, happy to um, keep doing what we do together. Every, every time I connect with you, it's always a good time. Well, we want to thank our guest, Joseph Burwell, for sharing his time and insights. He has done such incredible work around the world and here at home. And it was a real pleasure hearing his story of his transition, as well as his work with Peacework Medical. Tune in next week as we speak with Dr. Dana Sarah Stanhope, the director of the Point Loma Nazarene University PA program in Southern California. Dana shares her story about the program and about her path as a PA, including her developing several PA schools around the United States and her contributions as a nationally and internationally renowned leader for the PA profession. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policies of the University of Arizona.